In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Uh, our Bible study tonight from the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 20. Uh, these events happened on Tuesday after Hosanna Sunday. So the Lord entered Jerusalem on Sunday. Monday he cleanses the temple. So the events of this chapter happened on Tuesday, three days before his crucifixion. And the main point of this chapter is that the religious leaders tried to attempt to discredit the Lord Jesus Christ with the people and also to trap him into convicting himself with the Roman authorities by making reasonable and disloyal statement. So if they were able to trap him with the Roman authorities, this will be easy for the Roman authorities to arrest the Lord Jesus Christ and to crucify him. So they challenged our Lord Jesus Christ by asking him a series of three questions. The first, on his authority to teach and his authority to clean to cleanse the temple, when they asked him, by what authority you are doing this? The second question on payment Roman taxes. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And third question about his understanding of the resurrection. And this question, this question was asked by the Sadducees who do not believe, did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. And we'll see that our Lord Jesus Christ responded by defeating their traps and will ask two questions of his own on their understanding of two passages of Psalms. The first regarding Psalm 118 when it's about the stone that was rejected by the builders. And the second question Psalm 110, when the Lord said to my, uh, it says the Lord said to my Lord, sit at the right hand, uh, at my right hand. And he identified these two passages with himself. These two prophecies in the Psalms referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the chapter ends with the condemnation of the Lord of the scribes uh, and Pharisees. So the Lord's condemnation of scribes, that's the last part of the chapter. We can actually, the outline of the chapter, we can divide the chapter into six sections. Number one, religious leaders question Jesus' authority from verse one to eight. Number two, the parable of the wicked vine dressers from 9 to 19. Number three, a question about paying taxes from 20 to 26. And this actually will conclude our Bible study tonight. But the rest of the chapter from 27 to 40, the Sadducees question the Lord Jesus Christ on the resurrection. From 41 to 44, the son of David and the Lord of David how David called him his son and his Lord. Also, Jesus, the last part, Jesus 
warns about the hypocrisy of the scribes from verse 45 to 47. These are the six uh, parts of the chapter. So let's start from verse 1. Now it happened on one of those days as he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel that the chief priests and the scribes together with the elders confronted him. So, as I told you, these events took place on Tuesday. The first day of the week, Hosanna Sunday, was the day of the public entry into the city, when the people greeted him with psalms and olive branches. Then the purification of the temple took place on Monday, on which day also the barren fig tree was cursed when the Lord saw the fig tree and it did not have any fruit and he cursed the fig tree. We are now considering the events of Tuesday. St. Augustine the Evangelist says, the evangelist St. Luke did not mention the going of Christ to Bethany after his purifying the temple and his return and also his dealing with the barren fig tree and his words to his disciples who were amazed on seeing the fig tree wither. Uh, these events were mentioned in Matthew and Mark, but the Lord Jesus Christ here uh, in the Gospel of St. Luke, St. Luke did not mention any of these events, maybe because they were mentioned in other Gospels. So the Lord Jesus Christ wanted to teach the people in the temple on Tuesday and tell them about God's good news and did not look for these great debates with religious leaders. So the Lord was not interested in these debates with the religious leaders. But they came upon him evidently with hostile intent. intent. They came to catch him with a word that they may arrest him and lay hold of him. Why? Definitely the entry on Hosanna Sunday as a king, uh, this actually uh, triggered their jealousy. Also, when he cleanses the temple, uh, so his presence in Jerusalem made a, di a, a difference to the people there, people cried, Hosanna in the highest, this is the king of Israel, Hosanna, son of David, and son of David is one of the titles of the Messiah. All these things, besides cleansing the temple and driving out those who are buying and selling, provoked the anger and the jealousy of the religious leaders of Israel. Also, the Lord claimed special power in the temple the last two or three days. As I told you, he publicly driven out the money changer and the sellers and the buyers from the court. And in addition, as we read in Mark 11, verse 16, he forbade the carrying vessels across the temple. Also, he allowed the children in the temple to shout Hosanna to him uh, as a Messiah. And when they asked him to silence the children, he said, if they are silent, the stones will cry Hosanna. 
So here the Lord showed great courage. Now the religious leaders wanted to know by what right and what authority the Lord Jesus Christ did all of this. So they questioned him in verse 2, and he spoke to him saying, Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who is he who gave you this authority? So they made quite sure that Jesus, in reply, would claim that he had received a divine commission. Because the Lord acted, and in truth he is the Messiah, so by asking this question, they were very, very sure that the Lord would tell them, I am doing this because I am the Messiah. And if he made openly such formal claim that he is the Messiah, then this will be an opportunity to convict him out of his own mouth by blasphemy and to arrest him. Uh, so the, the Lord, how would he react? Should he lie? Of course, definitely not. Should he say, I am the Messiah? Then they give him a reason to arrest him. So we'll see the wisdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. He answered their question by a question. As we read in verse 3, But he answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing and answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? If those leaders had come to inquire about the truth with sincere heart, the Lord would not have hesitated to reveal himself according to their books. Also, he could have mentioned to them countless prophecies from the Old Testament about the truth of his mission and could have assured them that he is the Messiah, as he did with Peter when he told him, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my heavenly Father. And as he said with the two disciples of Amwas, when he starts from Moses and the prophets, explaining all the prophecies about him. But he knew they came with a bad intention. Uh, but the Lord also did not avoid to answer the question. So he answered their question by a question. Why? He used this question about John the Baptist actually to explain who he is and expose their hypocrisy. Because John the Baptist testified that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Lamb of God. So, if John was from God, then he was right in proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah. And if this was true, then Jesus had all the authority to cleanse the temple, to allow the children to uh, shout uh, Hosanna, all this authority. Uh, so their first trap or first attempt to trap the Lord was a failure. They knew that John is from heaven. But as we read in verse 5, they reasoned among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? Especially 
when he testified about me that I am the Messiah. And if, but if we say from men, all the people will stone us, so the people will be turned against them, for they all persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it was from. So their response showed that they were not sincere seekers of the truth. They cared more about winning the argument against the Lord than in knowing the truth. That's why the Lord has turned their trap back on them. Since they fear the people's response to a negative answer, if they say from earth, they refuse to answer Jesus. And in turn, he refused to answer their question about his authority. As the Lord told them in verse 8, and Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So, their reason for their refusal to answer again illustrates their self-serving hypocrisy. They knew that Jesus is the Messiah, but they did not want to admit it. When they showed themselves to be insincere seekers, Jesus refused also to answer their question. Jesus had great care and compassion for the sincere seeker but not for the cynical critiques and manipulators. If we want answers from the Lord, we must deal rightly with the truth that has already been revealed. These men knew that John said Jesus was the Messiah and were not willing to accept this truth. St. Cyril of Alexandria comments on Jesus' response by saying, they were unworthy to learn the truth and to see the pathway that leads directly to every good work. Verse 9, Then he began to tell the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard, leased it to vine dressers, and went into a far country for a long time. So, in response to their hostility to God's plan for men's salvation, through the rejection of Jesus as the Messiah, and rejection also of the mission of John the Baptist, so the Lord told this parable to the crowd, though he was mainly addressing the priests, the religious leaders of Israel. The Matthew and Mark mentioned more detailed in this parable than what Luke mentioned. Uh, which actually means that St. Luke did not uh, take this uh, story or parable from Matthew or Mark, otherwise he would mention all the details. But probably St. Luke took the parable from a version that was orally repeated uh, and of that which they reported more fully. Ma- Matthew and Mark reported more fully than Luke. He said the owner, the landowner, t- 
traveled for a long time. What does this mean? St. Ambrose says, he was absent for a long time, lest his coming to require his fruit might seem too early. And also, not only long time, but into a far country for a long time. Uh, long time he is patient. He gave us time and opportunity to bear fruits. But, uh, but what about a far country? Because God is present in every place. And God does not stop shepherding his people for his care is there continuously. But this word he left to a far country is expression of the free will he granted his people. Meaning, God allow us to do whatever we want to do by our free will, as if he left or traveled to a far country. He gave the vineyard to the tenant, giving them absolute freedom to act as if he has left them and went into far country. And the custom was, the landholder often rent out their property to tenant, tenant farmers, who had to share a percentage of the profits from the harvest with the owner of the land. So this was the custom. After the landowner rented to the farmers, they should actually give him part of the fruit. In, in verse 10, now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. That's the first one. Again, he sent another servant, second one, and they beat him also, treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. Third one, and again he sent a third, and they wounded him also and cast him out. The vineyard was used in the Old Testament as a symbol of Israel, as we read in Isaiah chapter 5. So the vineyard represents Israel. Who are the vine dressers? Vine dressers represent the religious leaders among the Jewish people. And they were allowed to work the vineyard to shepherd the people of Israel by a generous owner, God. Yet they turned it against the owner. But one day they would answer for their rebellion. Who are the three servants? The three servants collectively represent the prophets of the Lord, his messengers, whom he sent to them to urge them to bring forth some of the fruit. What fruit is the fruit of righteousness? Bringing forth good fruit in their lives, fruit of righteousness. But the Jews mocked these messengers of the Lord, despised their word and mistreated them. And there are many, many examples in the Old Testament about how they mistreated the prophets. But 
we can actually say that the three servants represent different uh, ages. So the first servant represents the time from Adam to Moses, where we, you, we say they were controlled by the natural law because there was no, not, there was no written law. But the law was in their conscience. And uh, man even broke this natural law. Uh, as we saw how Ab, uh, Cain killed Abel from the very, very beginning. So they rebelled against the law of God, the natural law. Cain killed his brother out of envy instead of brotherly love. The men of faith before the law, like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, lived through many hardships due to malicious people. And we can see how Joseph, for example, was persecuted by his own brothers and sold him as a slave. And the owner of the vineyard repeatedly tried to receive what was rightfully his from the vineyard and those who worked it. But they mistreated the servants of God. The second servant represents the people under the law of Moses, from Moses until the prophets. So here many people, including Moses and Aaron, were mistreated and the people abused them and uh, mistreated them. So when we read people under the law of Moses, we can see how the people continued in their abuse and misconduct. So the second servant represents the law of Moses. Moses suffered from the Jews due to their constant grumbling. The third slave is the prophets, the era of the, like Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. So the third slave offered by the owner of the vineyard is the prophecy. For there has been sent a group of prophets urging the people to repent. But these prophets were faced with persecution. So they rejected each of the three servants he sent to receive what was due to him. So finally, he sent his beloved son, thinking probably they will respect him. So the first group is the natural law, second servant, the law of Moses, third, the prophets. Verse 13. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. That's the incarnation of the Son of God. Probably they will respect him when they see him. But when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir, meaning they knew that he is a Messiah. Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard. The Lord was crucified outside Jerusalem and killed him. Then the Lord asked the question, Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? So the words about the son represented here by the Lord Jesus Christ possess the deepest doctrinal value. 
Because these words, under the thin veil of the parable story, answers the question of the Sanhedrin when they asked him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who is he who gave you this authority? So in this parable, he answered the question. I am the Son of God. I am the Messiah. I am sent by the Son of God. So he answers them clearly that he is the Son, the Messiah. But the renters of the vineyard foolishly thought they could benefit from killing the Son who had or would inherit the vineyard. They thought if they get rid of the Messiah, they continue to shepherd the people. They were seriously wrong in this foolish assumption. So the Lord used this parable as a metaphor, predicting his death at the hand of the Jewish religious authorities, because the vine dressers decided to kill the son, which their eventual loss of authority will happen as God representative, they will not be God representative anymore to his people. And their destruction will happen, which happened in year 70 AD when Titus, the Roman uh, general, destroyed the temple. So this parable tells us that God, the owner of all, that God is the owner of all, that he is more patient with those who rebel against him than we would ever be. Many people say, what God, God allowed the, the evil until now? Because he's patient, giving them opportunity to repent. But there will be final day of judgment. We also can understand going out of the vineyard to be killed could mean going out of Jerusalem to be crucified or his rejection in, 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 in general. The ungrateful, wicked one cast God out of their heart. So the Lord asked them the question, what will the owner of the vineyard would do to them? And the Lord answered, verse 16, he will come, that's the final judgment, and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, certainly not. So they understood that he is speaking about him. The Lord did not wait for the answer to justify what destruction would befall them and the loss of their authority as God's representative to his people. But he answered and said what God would do. And when they replied, certainly not, the religious leaders understood the parable immediately and objected that the Lord Jesus compared them to the rebellious and foolish tenants. In their blindness, they thought this could never be us. Then the Lord referred to them to Psalm 118. Then he looked at them and said, what then is this that is written? These people know the book of Psalms very well. So he told them, interpret this verse to me. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief corner stone. The builders are the religious leaders of Israel. 
the stone refers to the Lord Jesus Christ. They rejected him. Then he became the chief cornerstone. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken. But on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. So Jesus is identifying the rejection of the son in the parable and himself as the stone rejected by the builder. And the builder are the religious authorities. So Jesus quote from Psalm 118 verse 22 because this psalm described the coming of the Messiah to Jerusalem. And Jesus had been officially presented to Israel at the triumphal entry. This psalm actually has a prophecy on Hosanna Sunday, the, the entry of the Lord to Jerusalem. So the hostility of the Jewish leader showed that this messianic stone was being rejected, even if he was initially greeted with Hosanna. On Sunday he was greeted with Hosanna, but later on he was rejected. Uh, the stone was used as the building corner stone because it bear the weight or the stress of two walls. That's the corner stone. It was the stone which was essential or crucial for the whole structure. And many times in the scripture, Jesus is likened to a stone or a rock. For example, in 1 Corinthians 10, 4, he is the rock that followed Israel in the desert. In 1 Peter 2.8, he is the stone of stumbling. In Daniel 2.49, he is the stone cut without hands that crushes the kingdom of this world. So this rejected stone, thrown away of the city, has come to become the cornerstone on which the church is founded, that embraced two walls. What are the two walls? the Jewish member as well as the Gentiles. The Jews who became Jews who became Christian and the Gentiles who became Christian. And the vine dressers are now described as builders and the murderer, the murdered son is reproduced under the image of a cornerstone tossed aside as useless. So they threw the... the cornerstone as useless. But what about the final part of the picture? Let me explain this. He said, if somebody fall on the stone, will be broken. But if the stone fall on somebody, will grant him to powder. What does this mean? The first, the stone is beneath and people will fall on him. This about the first coming of Jesus. He came as a human being, as a servant. So anybody fell on Jesus, he will be bruised, but if he repented, he will, he's not destroyed. Maybe his pride will be broken and believe in Jesus Christ. But when the stone comes from above, that is the second coming, to judge the world, those who did not repent, he will grind them to powder. There is no time for repentance in the second coming. 
So the first part of the picture, it is the earthy, earthly humiliation of the Messiah. The stone is laid on earth. But in the second, the stone falling from the top of the building represents the crushing of all earthly opposition of the Messiah when he comes in his glory. Anyone who comes to Jesus will be broken of their pride and self-will. But those who refuse to come will be crushed by Christ in the judgment day. St. Augustine thinks those who fall on it and are shattered are the ones who rejected him during his ministry on earth. But if the cornerstone falls on them, they will be crushed and it will refer to those who died in their sins with no repentance in his second coming, he will grind them into powder. So the scribes and the chief priests certainly understood his reference to the scripture and the power of his teaching. They longed to arrest him on some serious charge, but they did not dare for the people joined by the, Passover, by the Passover pilgrims had exalted him. As we read in, in verse 19, and the chief priest and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the people. For they knew he had spoken this parable against them. So they understood that he spoke the parable against them. Their feeling was intensely resentful, and they felt that their power and influence was slipping away from them. These last parables were attacks on them. And by the image of the cornerstone, he told them that in killing him, they will not be done with him. For at the end, they will be crushed by his power in his second coming. Verse 20, so they watched him and sent the spies who pretended to be righteous. Sent the spies who pretended to be righteous, that they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and the authority of the governor. So public opinion about Jesus had kept the religious leaders from arresting Jesus. Now they changed their technique. They tried to turn the public opinion against him by making Jesus appear to side with the Roman government. So if they succeeded to present Jesus as siding with the Roman government, then they will turn the public opinion against him. So they watched him, what he said, what he did, where he went, that they might take an advantage against him. Knowing from their earlier confrontation that Jesus can recognize them, the chief priests sent their spies, their agent, in their hopes to trap Jesus. They refused to confront him again, but they sent the spies. And the spies tend to be righteous. So they came and they attempted to flatter Jesus as if they are righteous people. Pretended to be righteous. Verse 21. 
Then they asked him saying, Teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly. See here the hypocrisy. And you do not show personal favoritism. But teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? A very tricky question. They hoped that Jesus would be impressed by their empty praise. But even though they are insincere, their statement that they said about Jesus actually were true because he was teaching the truth. So what is the dilemma with this question? Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? If he said that taxes should be paid, he could be accused of denying the sovereignty of God over Israel and making himself unpopular with Jewish people. And if he said that taxes should not be paid, he made himself an enemy of Rome. When Herod, the son of Herod, Archelaus, was deposed by Romans in 6 AD, Romans imposed direct rule by a Roman governor over Judea and began, began to collect an annual tax on all the people. And in the days of Jesus, the Roman denarius brought the image of Emperor Tiparius, who ruled from year 14 to 37. Payment of the tax had to be in Roman currency because it represented the people's submission to the Roman rule. Some Jewish patri patriots refused, not wanting to recognize Roman rule as legitimate, but most other reluctantly paid the taxes. So the payment of Roman tax was a sensitive political issue in the first century. And this actually will become the trigger point of the Jewish riot against Rome in year 66 AD that resulted in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD by the Roman general uh, Titus. So if Jesus condemned the taxes, he's encouraging the people to reject the Roman authority over Judea and the Jews, and he could be arrested by Romans. And if he agrees that the tax bearing the image of the Roman emperor should be paid to the Romans, many who followed Jesus and believed he is a liberator, he will liberate people, uh, the Messiah, who will free them, the Messiah who will free them from pagan Roman, will be disappointed at Jesus. So, how the Lord replied, verse 23, but he perceived their craftiness and said to them, why do you test me? Although he flattered him, as if he is telling them, I know what you said is not insincere. It's not sincere. It is insincere. He told them, show me a denarius. 
Whose image and inscription does it have? They answered and said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. But they could not catch him in his word in the presence of the people. And they marveled at his answer and kept silent. So, not for a moment, that these spies deceived Jesus. They couldn't. Knowing what was in them and being a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the hearts, Jesus clearly saw their purpose. And Jesus reversed the trap. Since the tax had to be paid with Roman currency that bore the image of Caesar, then the coins belongs to Caesar. Then paying the denarius, the denarius was simply giving back to Caesar what belongs to him. So Jesus affirmed that government make legitimate requests of us because these denarius belong to them, not to the people. We are responsible to God in all things, but we must be obedient to government in matters civil and national. Essentially, Jesus said they recognize Caesar's civil authority when they use his coins, as if he's telling them, do you use his coins? Yes, we use. By using their coins in your daily life, then you recognize his authority over you. Then you are obliged to pay him the taxes he asks for. But also you need to render to God the things that belong to God. Everyone has the image of God impressed on him. We are created in the image of God. That means we belong to God, not to Caesar, not even to ourselves. Then we need to render all our being to God. According to St. Cyril of Alexandria, God does not require of us anything that's temporary and corruptible. God rather requires willing, obedience, submission, faith, love, and a sweet fragrance of good work that we should render to God. With his answer, they marveled. They thought that escape, that escape was impossible. Jesus will never be able to escape from this trap. And yet he innocently shattered their plans to pieces. According to their own rule, he whose image is on the coin is the king of the land. That's the, the rule of, of the Jews. So that there is no need for him to give any opinion whatever about it. Because that is the rule. Whose image is on the coin is the king of the land. So by using these coins, they all admitted that they had no king but Caesar. And that's actually, this was their cry on Friday when they said, we don't have any king other than Caesar. This actually concludes our Bible study tonight. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.